1. The Legends of King Arthur and His Knights Sir James Knowles Preface to the 8th edition The publishers have asked me to authorize a new edition, in my own name, of this little book now long out of print which was written by me 35 years ago under the initials JTK. In acceding to their request I wish to say that the book as now published is nearly a word-for-word reprint of my early effort to help to popularize the Arthur legends. It is little else than an abridgment of Sir Thomas Mallory's version of them as printed by Caxton with a few additions from Geoffrey of Monmouth and other sources and an endeavor to arrange the many tales into a more or less consecutive story. The chief pleasure which came to me from it was, and island that it began for me a long and intimate acquaintance with Lord Tennyson, to whom, by his permission, I dedicated it before I was personally known to him, James Knowles. Addendum by Lady Knowles in response to a widely expressed wish for a fresh edition of this little book now for some years out of print a new and ninth edition has been prepared. In his preface my husband says that the intimacy with Lord Tennyson to which it led was the chief pleasure the book brought him. I have been asked to furnish a few more particulars on this point that may be generally interesting, and feel that I cannot do better than give some extracts from a letter written by himself to a friend in July 1896. Dear. I am so very glad you approve of my little effort to popularize the Arthur legends. Tennyson had written his first four idols of the king before my book appeared, which was in 1861. Indeed, it was in consequence of the first four idols that I sought and obtained, while yet a stranger to him, leave to dedicate my venture to him. He was extremely kind about it declared it ought to go through 40 editions and when I came to know him personally talked very frequently about it and Arthur with me and made constant use of it when he at length yielded to my perpetual urgency and took up again his forsaken project of treating the whole subject of King Arthur. He discussed and rediscussed at any amount of length the way in which this could now be done and the symbolism, which had from his earliest time haunted him as the inner meaning to be given to it, brought him back to the poem in its changed shape of separate pictures. He used often to say that it was entirely my doing that he revived his old plan, and added, I know more about Arthur than any other man in England, and I think you know next most. It would amuse you to see in what intimate detail he used to consult with me and often with my little book in front of us over the various tales, and when I wrote an article in the shape of a long letter in the Spectator of January 1870 he asked to reprint it, and published it with the collected idols, for years, while his boys were at school and college. I acted as his confidential friend in business and many other matters and I suppose he told me more about himself and his life than any other man now living knows. Isabel Knowles, The Legends of King Arthur Chapter I The Prophecies of Merlin, and the birth of Arthur King Vortiger and the usurper sat upon his throne in London, when, suddenly, upon a certain day, ran in a breathless messenger, and cried aloud, Arise, Lord King, for the enemy is come, even Ambrosius and Uther upon whose throne now sittest and full twenty thousand with them and they have sworn by a great oath, Lord, to slay thee, ere this year be done, and even now they march towards thee as the north wind of winter for bitterness and haste. At those words Vortigern's face grew white as ashes, and, rising in confusion and disorder, he sent for all the best artificers and craftsmen and mechanics, and commanded them vehemently to go and build him straightway in the furthest west of his lands a great and strong castle where he might fly for refuge and escape the vengeance of his master's sons, and, moreover, cried he, let the work be done within a hundred days from now, or I will surely spare no life amongst you all, 
Then all the host of craftsmen, fearing for their lives, found out a proper site whereon to build the tower, and eagerly began to lay in the foundations. But no sooner were the walls raised up above the ground than all their work was overwhelmed and broken down by night invisibly, no man perceiving how, or by whom, or what, and the same thing happening again, and yet again, all the workmen, full of terror, sought out the king, and threw themselves upon their faces before him, beseeching him to interfere and help them or to deliver them from their dreadful work, filled with mixed rage and fear, the king called for the astrologers and wizards, and took counsel with them what these things might be, and how to overcome them. The wizards worked their spells and incantations, and in the end declared that nothing but the blood of a youth born without mortal father, smeared on the foundations of the castle, could avail to make it stand. Messengers were therefore sent forth with through all the land to find, if it were possible, such a child, and, as some of them went down a certain village street, they saw a band of lads fighting and quarreling, and heard them shout at one, Avant, thou imp, Avant, son of no mortal man, go, find thy father, and leave us in peace. At that the messengers looked steadfastly on the lad, and asked who he was. One said his name was Merlin, another, that his birth and parentage were known by no man, a third, that the foul fiend alone was his father. Hearing these things, the officers seized Merlin, and carried him before the king by force. But no sooner was he brought to him than he asked in a loud voice, for what cause he was thus dragged there. My magicians, answered Vortigern, told me to seek out a man that had no human father, and to sprinkle my castle with his blood, that it may stand. Order those magicians, said Merlin, to come before me, and I will convict them of a lie. The king was astonished at his words, but commanded the magicians to come and sit down before Merlin who cried to them, Because ye know not what it is that hinders the foundation of the castle, ye have advised my blood for a cement to it, as if that would avail, but tell me now rather what there is below that ground, for something there is surely underneath that will not suffer the tower to stand. The wizards at these words began to fear, and made no answer. Then said Merlin to the king, I pray, Lord, that workmen may be ordered to dig deep down into the ground till they shall come to a great pool of water. This then was done, and the pool discovered far beneath the surface of the ground. Then, turning again to the magicians, Merlin said, Tell me now, false sycophants, what there is underneath that pool. But they were silent. Then said he to the king, Command this pool to be drained, and at the bottom shall be found two dragons, great and huge, which now are sleeping, but which at night awake and fight and tear each other. At their great struggle all the ground shakes and trembles and so casts down thy towers, which, therefore, never yet could find secure foundations. The king was amazed at these words, but commanded the pool to be forthwith drained, and surely at the bottom of it did they presently discover the two dragons, fast asleep, as Merlin had declared. But Vortigern sat upon the brink of the pool till night to see what else would happen. Then those two dragons, one of which was white, the other red, rose up and came near one another and began a sore fight, and cast forth fire with their breath, but the white dragon had the advantage, and chased the other to the end of the lake, and he, for grief at his flight, turned back upon his foe, and renewed the combat, and forced him to retire in turn, but in the end the red dragon was worsted, and the white dragon disappeared no man knew where, when their battle was done, the king desired Merlin to tell him what it meant, 
whereat he, bursting into tears, cried out this prophecy, which first foretold the coming of King Arthur. Woe to the red dragon, which figureth the British nation, for his banishment cometh quickly, his lurking holes shall be seized by the white dragon the Saxon who now, O king, hast called to the land, the mountains shall be leveled as the valleys, and the rivers of the valleys shall run blood, cities shall be burned, and churches laid in ruins, till at length the oppressed shall turn for a season and prevail against the strangers, for a boar of Cornwall shall arise and rend them, and trample their necks beneath his feet, the island shall be subject to his power, and he shall take the forests of Gaul, the house of Romulus shall dread him all the world shall fear him and his end shall no man know, he shall be immortal in the mouths of the people, and his works shall be food to those that tell them, but as for thee, O Vortigern, flee thou the sons of Constantine, for they shall burn thee in thy tower, for thine own ruin wast thou traitor to their father, and didst bring the Saxon heathens to the land, Aurelius and Uther are even now upon thee to revenge their father's murder, and the brood of the white dragon shall waste thy country, and shall lick thy blood, find out some refuge, if thou wilt, but who may escape the doom of God, the king heard all this, trembling greatly, and, convicted of his sins, said nothing in reply, only he hasted the builders of his tower by day and night, and rested not till he had fled thereto, in the meantime, Aurelius, the rightful king, was hailed with joy by the Britons, who flocked to his standard, and prayed to be led against the Saxons, but he, till he had first killed Vortigern, would begin no other war, he marched therefore to Cambria, and came before the tower which the usurper had built, then, crying out to all his knights, avenge ye on him who hath ruined Britain and slain my father and your king, he rushed with many thousands at the castle walls, but, being driven back again and yet again, at length he thought of fire, and ordered blazing brands to be cast into the building from all sides, these finding soon a proper fuel, ceased not to rage, till spreading to a mighty conflagration, they burned down the tower and vortigern within it, then did Aurelius turn his strength against Hungist and the Saxons, and, defeating them in many places, weakened their power for a long season, so that the land had peace, and on the king, making many journeys to and fro, restoring ruined churches and, creating order, came to the monastery near Salisbury, where all those British knights lay buried who had been slain there by the treachery of Hungist, for when in former times Hungist had made a solemn truce with Vortigern, to meet in peace and settle terms, whereby himself and all his Saxons should depart from Britain, the Saxon soldiers carried every one of them beneath his garment a long dagger, and, at a given signal, fell upon the Britons, and slew them to the number of nearly five hundred, the sight of the place where the dead lay moved Aurelius to great sorrow, and he cast about in his mind how to make a worthy to over so many noble martyrs, who had died there for their country, when he had in vain consulted many craftsmen and builders, he sent, by the advice of the archbishop, for Merlin, and asked him what to do, if you would honor the burying place of these men, said Merlin, with an everlasting monument, Send for the giant's dance which is in Hilaros, a mountain in Ireland, for there is a structure of stone there which none of this age could raise without a perfect knowledge of the arts. They are stones of a vast size and wondrous nature, and if they can be placed here as they are there, round this spot of ground, they will stand forever. At these words of Merlin, Aurelius burst into a laughter, and said, How is it possible to remove such vast stones from so great a distance, as if Britain, also, 
had no stones fit for the work, I pray the king, said Merlin, to forbear vain laughter, what I have said is true, for those stones are mystical and have healing virtues, the giants of old brought them from the furthest coast of Africa, and placed them in Ireland while they lived in that country, and their design was to make baths in them, for use in time of grievous illness, for if they washed the stones and put the sick into the water, it certainly healed them, as also it did them that were wounded in battle, and there is no stone among them but half the same virtue still. When the Britons heard this, they resolved to send for the stones, and to make war upon the people of Ireland if they offered to withhold them. So, when they had chosen Uther the king's brother for their chief, they set sail, to the number of 15.000 men, and came to Ireland, their Gilomanes, the king, withstood them fiercely, and not till after a great battle could they approach the giant's dance, the sight of which filled them with joy and admiration, but when they sought to move the stones, the strength of all the army was in vain, until Merlin, laughing at their failures, contrived machines of wondrous cunning, which took them down with ease, and placed them in the ships, when they had brought the whole to Salisbury, Aurelius, with the crown upon his head, kept for four days the feast of Pentecost with royal pomp, and in the midst of all the clergy and the people, Merlin raised up the stones, and set them round the sepulchre of the knights and barons, as they stood in the mountains of Ireland, then was the monument called, Stonehenge, which stands, as all men know, upon the plain of Salisbury to this very day, soon thereafter it befell that Aurelius was slain by poison at Winchester, and was himself buried within the giant's dance, at the same time came forth the comet of amazing size and brightness, darting out a beam, at the end whereof was a cloud of fire shaped like a dragon, from whose mouth went out to raise, one stretching over Gaul, the other ending in seven lesser rays over the Irish Sea, at the appearance of this star a great dread fell upon the people, and Uther, marching into Cambria against the son of Vortigern, himself was very troubled to learn what it might mean, then Merlin, being called before him, cried with a loud voice, O mighty loss, O stricken Britain, alas, the great prince is gone from us, Aurelius Ambrosius is dead, whose death will be ours also, unless God help us, haste, therefore, noble Uther, to destroy the enemy, the victory shall be thine, and thou shalt be king of all Britain, for the star with the fiery dragon signifies thyself, and the ray over Gaul portends that thou shalt have a son, most mighty, whom all those kingdoms shall obey which the ray covers, thus, for the second time, did Merlin foretell the coming of King Arthur, and Uther, when he was made king, remembered Merlin's words, and caused two dragons to be made in gold, in likeness of the dragon he had seen in the star, one of these he gave to Winchester Cathedral, and had the other carried into all his wars before him, whence he was ever after called Uther Pendragon, or the dragon's head, now, when Uther Pendragon had passed through all the land, and settled in and even voyaged into all the countries of the Scots, and tamed the fierceness of that rebel people he came to London, and ministered justice there, and it befell at a certain great banquet and high feast which the king made at Easter tide, there came, with many other earls and barons, Gorlois, Duke of Cornwall, and his wife Idurna, who was the most famous beauty in all Britain, and soon thereafter, Gorlois being slain in battle, Uther determined to make Idurna his own wife, but in order to do this, and enable him to come to her for she was shut up in the high castle of Tintagel, on the furthest coast of Cornwall the king sent for Merlin, 
to take counsel with him and to pray his help. This, therefore, Merlin promised him on one condition namely, that the king should give him up the first son born of the marriage, for Merlin by his arts foreknew that this firstborn should be the long-wished prince, King Arthur, when Uther, therefore, was at length happily wedded. Merlin came to the castle on a certain day, and said, Sir, thou must now provide thee for the nourishing of thy child, and the king, nothing doubting, said, Be it as thou wilt, I know a lord of thine in this land, said Merlin, who is a man both true and faithful, let him have the nourishing of the child, his name is Sir Ector, and he hath fair possessions both in England and in Wales, when, therefore, the child is born, let him be delivered unto me and christened, at yonder postern gate, and I will bestow him in the care of this good knight. So when the child was born, the king bid two knights and two ladies to take it, bound in rich cloth of gold, and deliver it to a poor man whom they should discover at the postern gate. And the child being delivered thus to Merlin, who himself took the guise of a poor man, was carried by him to a holy priest and christened by the name of Arthur, and then was taken to Sir Ector's house and nourished at Sir Ector's wife's own breasts, and in the same house he remained privily for many years, no man's ever knowing where he was, save Merlin and the king, and on it befell that the king was seized by a lingering distemper, and the Saxon heathens, taking their occasion, came back from oversea, and swarmed upon the land, wasting it with fire and sword, when Uther heard thereof, he fell into a greater rage than his weakness could bear, and commanded all his nobles to come before him, that he might upbraid them for their cowardice, and when he had sharply and hotly rebuked them, he swore that he himself, nigh unto death although he lay, would lead them forth against the enemy, then causing a horse litter to be made, in which he might be carried for he was too faint and weak to ride he went up with all his army swiftly against the Saxons, but they, when they heard that Uther was coming in a litter, disdained to fight with him, saying it would be shame for brave men to fight with one half dead, so they retired into their city, and, as it were in scorn of danger, left the gates wide open, but Uther straightway commanding his men to assault the town, they did so without loss of time, and had already reached the gates, when the Saxons, repenting too late of their haughty pride, rushed forth to the defense, the battle raged till night, and was begun again next day, but at last, their leaders, Octa and Eosa, being slain, the Saxons turned their backs and fled, leaving the Britons a full triumph. The king at this felt so great joy, that, whereas before he could scarce raise himself without help, he now sat upright in his litter by himself, and said, with a laughing and merry face, They called me the half-dead king, and so indeed I was, but victory to me half-dead is better than defeat and the best health, for to die with honor is far better than to live disgraced. But the Saxons, although thus defeated, were ready still for war. Uther would have pursued them, but his illness had by now so grown, that his knights and barons kept him from the adventure, whereat the enemy took courage, and left nothing undone to destroy the land, until, descending to the vilest treachery, they resolved to kill the king by poison. To this end, as he lay sick at Verulam, they sent and poisoned stealthily a spring of clear water, whence he was wont to drink daily, and so, on the very next day, he was taken with the pains of death, as were also a hundred others after him, before the villainy was discovered, and heaps of earth thrown over the well, the knights and barons, full of sorrow, now took counsel together, 
and came to Merlin for his help to learn the king's will before he died, for he was by this time speechless. Sirs, there is no remedy, said Merlin, and God's will must be done, but be ye all tomorrow before him, for God will make him speak before he die. So on the morrow all the barons, with Merlin, stood round the bedside of the king, and Merlin said aloud to Uther, Lord, shall thy son Arthur be the king of all this realm after thy days? Then Uther Pendragon turned him about, and said, In the hearing of them all, God's blessing and mine be upon him. I bid him pray for my soul, and also that he claim my crown, or forfeit all my blessing, and with those words he died. Then came together all the bishops and the clergy, and great multitudes of people, and bewailed the king, and carrying his body to the convent of Embrys, they buried it close by his brother's grave, within the giant's dance. Chapter I The Miracle of the Sword and Stone, and the coronation of King Arthur the Sword Excalor the war with the eleven kings Now Arthur the prince had all this time been nourished in Sir Ector's house as his own son, and was fair and tall and comely, being of the age of fifteen years, great in strength, gentle in manner, and accomplished in all exercises proper for the training of a knight. But as yet he knew not of his father, for Merlin had so dealt, that none save Uther and himself knew aught about him. Wherefore it befell, that many of the knights and barons who heard King Uther speak before his death, and call his son Arthur his successor, were in great amazement, and some doubted, and others were displeased, and on the chief lords and princes set forth each to his own land, and, raising armed men and multitudes of followers, determined every one to gain the crown for himself, for they said in their hearts, If there be any such a son at all as he of whom this wizard forced the king to speak, who are we that a beardless boy should have rule over us? So the land stood long in great peril, for every lord and baron sought but his own advantage, and the Saxons, growing ever more adventurous, wasted and overran the towns and villages in every part. Then Merlin went to Bryce, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and advised him to require all the earls and barons of the realm and all knights and gentlemen at arms to come to him at London, before Christmas, under pain of cursing that they might learn the will of heaven who should be king. This, therefore, the archbishop did, and upon Christmas Eve Werder met together in London all the greatest princes, lords, and barons, and long before day they prayed in Street Paul's church, and the archbishop besought heaven for a sign who should be lawful king of all the realm, and as they prayed, there was seen in the churchyard, set straight before the doorways of the church, a huge square stone having a naked sword stuck in the midst of it and on the sword was written in letters of gold, Whoso pulleth out the sword from this stone is born the rightful king of Britain. At this all the people wondered greatly, and, when mass was over, the nobles, knights, and princes ran out eagerly from the church to see the stone and sword, and a law was forthwith made that whoso should pull out the sword should be acknowledged straightway king of Britain. Then many knights and barons pulled at the sword with all their might, and some of them tried many times, but none could stir or move it. When all had tried in vain, the archbishop declared the man whom heaven had chosen was not yet there, but God, said he, will doubtless make him known ere many days. So ten knights were chosen, being men of high renown, to watch and keep the sword, and there was proclamation made through all the land that whosoever would, had leave and liberty to try and pull it from the stone. But though great multitudes of people came, both gentle and simple, for many days, no man could ever move the sword a hair's breadth from its place. Now, at the New Year's Eve a great tournament was to be held in London, 
which the archbishop had devised to keep together lords and commons, lest they should grow estranged in the troublous and unsettled times, to the which tournament there came, with many other knights, Sir Hector, Arthur's foster father, who had great possessions near to London, and with him came his son, Sir Key, but recently made knight, to take his part in the jesting, and young Arthur also to witness all the sports and fighting, but as they rode towards the jests, Sir Key found suddenly he had no sword, for he had left it at his father's house, and turning to young Arthur, he prayed him to ride back and fetch it for him, I will with a good will, said Arthur, and rode fast back after the sword, but when he came to the house he found it locked and empty, for all were gone forth to see the tournament, whereat, being angry and impatient, he said within himself, I will ride to the churchyard and take with me the sword that sticketh in the stone, for my brother shall not go without a sword this day, so he rode and came to the churchyard, and alighting from his horse he tied him to the gate, and went to the pavilion, which was pitched near the stone, wherein abode the ten knights who watched and kept it, but he found no knights there, for all were gone to see the jesting, then he took the sword by its handle, and lightly and fiercely he pulled it out of the stone, and took his horse and rode until he came to Suraki and delivered him the sword, but as soon as Suraki saw it he knew well it was the sword of the stone, and, riding swiftly to his father, he cried out, Lo, here, sir, is the sword of the stone, wherefore it is I who must be king of all this land, when Sir Hector saw the sword, he turned back straight with Arthur and Sir Key and came to the churchyard, and there alighting, they went all three into the church, and Sir Key was sworn to tell truly how he came by the sword, then he confessed it was his brother Arthur who had brought it to him, whereat Sir Hector, turning to young Arthur, asked him, How gottest thou the sword? Sir, said he, I will tell you, when I went home to fetch my brother's sword, I found nobody to deliver it to me, for all were abroad to the jests, yet was I loath to leave my brother swordless, and, bethinking me of this one, I came hither eagerly to fetch it for him, and pulled it out of the stone without any pain, then said Sir Hector, much amazed and looking steadfastly on Arthur, if this indeed be thus, tis thou who shalt be king of all this land and God will have it so for none but thee who should be rightful lord of Britain might ever draw this sword forth from that stone but let me now with mine own eyes see thee put back the sword into its place and draw it forth again, that is no mystery, said Arthur, and straightway set it in the stone, and then Sir Hector pulled at it himself, and after him Sir Key, with all his might, but both of them in vain, then Arthur reaching forth his hand and grasping at the pommel, pulled it out easily, and at once, then fell Sir Hector down upon his knees upon the ground before young Arthur, and Sir Key also with him, and straightway did him homage as their sovereign lord, but Arthur cried aloud, Alas, mine own dear father and my brother, why kneel ye thus to me? Nay, my lord Arthur, answered then Sir Hector, we are of no blood kinship with thee, and little though I thought how high thy kin might be, yet wast thou never more than foster child of mine, and then he told him all he knew about his infancy, and how a stranger had delivered him, with a great sum of gold, into his hands to be brought up and nourished as his own born child, and then had disappeared, but when young Arthur heard of it, he fell upon Sir Hector's neck, and wept, and made great lamentation, for now, said he, I have in one day lost my father and my mother and my brother, Sir, said Sir Hector presently, when thou shalt be made king be good and gracious unto me and mine, 
If not, said Arthur, I were no true man's son at all, for thou art the in all the world to whom I owe the most, and my good lady and mother, thy wife, hath ever kept and fostered me as though I were her own, so if it be God's will that I be kin hereafter as thou sayest, desire of me whatever thing thou wilt and I will do it, and God forbid that I should fail thee in it, I will but pray, replied Sir Ector, that thou wilt make my son Sir Key, thy foster brother, seneschal of all the lands, that shall he be, said Arthur, and never shall another hold that office, save thy son, while he and I do live, and on, they left the church and went to the archbishop to tell him that the sword had been achieved, and when he saw the sword in Arthur's hand he set a day and summoned all the princes, knights, and barons to meet again at Street Paul's church and see the will of heaven signified, so when they came together, the sword was put back in the stone, and all tried, from the greatest to the least, to move it, but there before them all not one could take it out save Arthur only, but then befell a great confusion and dispute, for some cried out it was the will of heaven, and, long live King Arthur, but many more were full of wrath and said, what, would ye give the ancient scepter of this land unto a boy born none know how, and the contention growing greatly, till nothing could be done to pacify their rage, the meeting was at length broken up by the archbishop and adjourned till Candlemas, when all should meet again, but when Candlemas was come, Arthur alone again pulled forth the sword, though more than ever came to win it, and the barons, sorely vexed and angry, put it in delay till Easter, but as he had sped before so he did at Easter, and the barons yet once more contrived delays till Pentecost, but now the archbishop, fully seeing God's will, called together, by Merlin's counsel, a band of knights and gentlemen at arms, and set them about Arthur to keep him safely till the feast of Pentecost, and when at the feast Arthur still again alone prevailed to move the sword, the people all with one accord cried out, Long live King Arthur, we will have no more delay, nor any other king, for so it is God's will, and we will slay whoso resist at him and Arthur, and wherewithal they kneeled down all at once, and cried for Arthur's grace and pardon that they had so long delayed him from his crown, then he full sweetly and majestically pardoned them, and taking in his hand the sword, he offered it upon the high altar of the church, and on was he solemnly knighted with great pomp by the most famous knight there present, and the crown was placed upon his head, and, having taken oath to all the people, lords and commons, to be true kin and deal in justice only unto his life's end, he received homage and service from all the barons who held lands and castles from the crown, then he made Sir Key, High Steward of England, and Sir Bodwain of Britain, Constable, and Sir Alphys, Chamberlain, and after this, with all his court and a great retinue of knights and armed men, he journeyed into Wales, and was crowned again in the old city of Carleon upon Isk, Ebb, 